Buford Hilton Head, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church. On the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener, for the next hour, we'll be taking people's phone calls and questions. You can reach us locally, 525-1859, area code 843, 843-525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We're happy to receive it that way as well. Rick, it's great to be back here in the studio today. It is need, Pastor, and we've got a number of calls that uh, have been uh, given us, so let's get to some of these questions right now. Uh, Our first listener would like to know, is Andy Stanley's church model purported in his book, Deep and Wide, something you agree with? Uh, What do you see as possible error, if any, with this model and with the Andy Stanley theology? Well, um, I've done a recent review on the book, and uh, I I thought that maybe it would be worth commenting. Uh, I jotted down a couple of quotes from the book. Um, I I don't think for the average reader it would be a good book to read unless they're very, very discerning and they have a strong biblical foundation by which to evaluate some of his uh, presuppositions. Uh, He says in the book, quote, the church is for unchurched people. Uh, that's what he defines as the principal reason for the church. And by unchurched, he, uh, he refers to people who haven't been active or attending a church for at least four or five years. Uh, the, the problem I would have with that is that's really not the principal focus of the local assembly in the New Testament. Now, of course, uh, the, the church gathers uh, for worship that we might scatter throughout the week and have an impact on people's lives But when the church gathers, the principal focus is not unbelievers. It's the people of God. A good text of scripture that would remind me of that would be 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Because all the way through that chapter, he highlights the need for the church. In the church, of course, in the Bible, the ecclesia, it's a Greek word that means called out ones. And it's used uh, primarily of believers. In a few cases in the New Testament, it's used of unbelievers, like a mob of people that want to lynch the Apostle Paul. Um, But primarily, it's used in the New Testament to refer to the body of Christ, those called out by God himself, not by the world, uh, to serve him. And so in 1 Corinthians 14, one of the key focuses concerns the misuse of spiritual gifts. There are four central passages in the Bible that deal with the subject of spiritual gifts. I always remember them, 2.12s, 2.4s, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And of course, in chapters 12 through 14, he reminds us that 
just like your physical body does not have one member but many, and each member is dependent on the other for its proper functioning, the eye can't say to the ear, I have no need of you, and so forth. Even so it is in the body of Christ. We need each other. And, of course, the focus that the Corinthians had was they were elevating one gift over another and really to the exclusion of the effect that it would have on the body. And so that's one of the things he deals with in this section. For instance, he says, one who speaks in the tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. And so he's reminding them that if uh, someone speaks in a tongue and no one is able to interpret, then the church is not edified. And that's one of the principal reasons for gathering. Uh, He'll say a few verses later, so also you that are zealous of spiritual gifts seek to abound for the edification of the church. And so he's again addressing the issue of when God's people are assembled on the first day of the week, that it is towards the edification, not of the lost man, but of the church. He'll say a few verses later in verse 17 of the 14th chapter, uh, for you are giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. Again, a major focus in verse 26. He says, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. So um, the church, when it gathers on the Lord's day, is not principally Uh, for the loss, it's principally for the saved. And so all the way through scripture, it's assumed, for instance, in the pastoral epistles, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, teach sound doctrine, Timothy. Uh, That happens on the first day of the week. Now, non-Christians are certainly welcome to gather with the body of Christ. And if a church is doing its job, they will be inviting unbelievers. In fact, in the same chapter, he uh, talks about the effect of, that good sound doctrine has even on an unbeliever. He said, if the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues and an ungifted person or an unbeliever enters in, will they not say you're all mad? You're, you're nuts. So he he's illustrating here. They're speaking in these tongues. No one is able to interpret. Neither is the church edified, but the unbeliever thinks you're crazy. You're off your gourd. But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters in, he's convicted by all, and he's called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. So there's an assumption that unbelievers will be present. Why would they be there? Because believers invited them. And so when the Word of God is taught, uh, it has many functions. One, it's alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit. It gets down to the core of people in who they are, such that we're left naked before God, the writer of the Hebrews says in the fourth chapter. Uh, God promises in, by the prophet Isaiah, just like the rain that comes out of the sky and the snow that falls to the earth, waters the earth and accomplishes a purpose, then he applies it, so shall my word be that proceeds from my mouth. It will not return void or empty without accomplishing the purpose for which I've sent it. And so when a pastor opens the word of God and he's teaching the people of God, the unbeliever is called to account. Uh, One of the functions of the law is it convicts. It's like a um, schoolmaster, Paul says to the church at Galatia, that would lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, So one of the one of the down things I have about his uh, the focus of the book is he designs. And this is what the seeker sensitive movement is doing 
it's designing the church service, not with the believer in mind, but with the unbeliever in mind. So they've actually reversed what God has said. And if you read his book carefully, you discover that it's really kind of unclear who belongs uh, to the local assembly because of the approach that they take. And what he's doing may seem like a nice thing, but in my view, it's a very unloving thing because his advice is dangerous. For instance, I read on page 91, uh, he's very vague about who can participate in the church, uh, who can be a part of the church on page 69, who can be admitted into the church on page 72. Extremely, extremely vague. Um, and so he encourages, for instance, unbelievers to, sh- to sign up for short-term mission trips on page 79. He encourages unbelievers to serve in as many roles as possible on page 80. And he points out, you can join our church online without talking to a real person, page 81. Uh, yeah, I'm very uncomfortable with that as a pastor. Someone can join your church without talking to a real person. Uh, look, people all the time at Community Bible Church, because we are an invitational church, will come down front on a Sunday morning. Just last Sunday, a couple came down front uh, in one of our services. And of course we had never met them before. They both claimed to be Christians, but when they came to the meet the pastor meeting Sunday night, it was obvious that neither of them were believers and both came to faith in Jesus Christ that evening. So, you know, to just say, well, I'm a Christian and I've invited Jesus into my heart. We're, we're living in a post-Christian culture where people still know a number of the catchphrases and terms uh, but with very often no definition, and they don't understand what they mean. Does understanding precede conversion in the New Testament? Absolutely. You have to know certain things before you can believe them. You have to know you're a sinner, that you're morally bankrupt, that there's nothing that you can do on your own to rectify the problem, but that only the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ can can change any of that. Um He argues that on page 115, like a good sailor, you will adjust your sails so that you can harness the winds of culture to take your audience where they need to go. If people are more interested in being happy, then play to that. No, that's bad, 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 bad counsel. You don't play to the world and what they want. You go to the word of God and and the principles in the word of God are, uh, they have no expiration date. You, you don't have to change your approach to ministry. Now, certainly there may be uh, principles in terms of how you apply them. If you want to win the loss, say, and, and you have a, a bus ministry, that might have been very successful in the 50s and 60s, but it wouldn't work in the day that we live in. So again, um, he will argue that pastors are, are not first and foremost shepherds. He calls them CEOs. We're not CEOs. We are shepherds who are to feed the flock. And so even in last year when the Southern Baptist Convention met, he took issue with the fact that pastors should be called shepherds. That's what God calls them. Why should we call them anything else? And so the whole problem with the seeker-sensitive driven church is it puts seekers, the lost person, above the person who's being sought. And so even in that famous sermon that he has never yet refuted, uh, refuted when Gracie seeks truthy, and he has these uh, two homosexual men who are serving in the church, their service is called into question, not because they're homosexual, their service is called into question 
because one man is still married to his wife. Like he's committing adultery with this gay person because he's still married to his wife. Well, the fact is, is that homosexuality is an abomination and he never brings that out. And he's been challenged by Christians all across the nation to refute what he said. He's yet to say that he's yet to come out and say what I said was unclear. Let me rectify what I mean. Homosexuality is a sin. It's an abomination to God. He still refuses to do that. And, and then as it turns out, one gets a divorce. He lives with his partner and now they're both serving in the church. So, um, look, if people come to me sometimes who are even believers and I know them to be believers and they'd say, well, I'd like to serve in the church. And I'd say, well, you, you're really not a member. Well, I don't want to be a member of a church. Well, well, why not? Well, I don't know. I just have a thing against membership. Well, I'll explain to them. You have a thing against the New Testament because the New Testament teaches membership. You don't find the word membership. It's like the word Trinity. It's not found in the Bible, but clearly taught. And the idea of committing yourself to a local fellowship where you are willing to uh, use your time, talent, and treasure under the authority of pastors and elders in the church, obey your leaders, submit to them. That's a New Testament concept. And if someone is unwilling to do that, then it seems to me once they understand that that's what God says and they're still unwilling, then they're disobedient. If they're disobedient, then they're not spirit filled. And if they're not spirit filled, why would I want them to serve in a local assembly? So I'll say to him, look, if you know Christ as you claim you do, then join either our church or another believing Bible believing church, but don't float. Um, so his whole premise, all in the name of reaching people for Christ is very, very dangerous. It's unbiblical. It's unfounded. It's against 2000 years of church history and I wouldn't uh, give any credence to it. So I hope that answers your question. Let's go to the next uh, caller. 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980 or email us at tbl at net. We do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Good morning, caller. Thanks for listening. You're on the Bible line. Well, well I guess they We lost to hang them. Up. Okay. They can call back if they want. Let's go to the next question. All right. Actually, maybe on line two. Let's see if they're there. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to. What's on your mind today? Uh, this past Sunday, you during your sermon, you said that, you know, you have a man who says, I want to be a holy man or a godly man, but yeah, he... He goes home and he watches HBO or some other awful thing, or a woman says, I want to be a holy woman, but yet she downloads immoral music, etc. And that, that uh, reminded me of a question I asked you about a year ago, maybe, about if you have you know, certain dreams, whether nightmares or violent dreams or you know, impure dreams or whatever the Bible says is wrong, uh, is that because the Satan's attacking you, or uh, is it because of what you filled your mind with, or a combination? Uh, and you said you thought it was a combination of both, and you you went on to uh, mention a, I guess it was a experiment or of sorts that this college did. I think that was right, where they had these students look at a bunch of you know really bad stuff, and then they stopped, but then they would have all these bad dreams while the stuff was getting out of their system. I was, uh, it got me to thinking, because I watched a movie years ago, back in the 80s, where 
And long story short, where one man, they had two sets of twins, and one was brought up on an island, well-educated, et cetera, and he comes to America, and it's comical, just his experience with something new. I wondered if, if someone were sort of sheltered all their life, brought up on the Bible, would they still face those uh, bad dreams, or is it mostly what you fill your mind with? And if so, uh, if you do cut off cold turkey and focus on the Lord and everything, just wondering how long it would take to kind of flush that stuff out of your system. Well, it's a great question. And uh, no, I would say primarily our thought life is directed by what we put into our mind. It's like a computer, guy go garbage in, garbage out. A proverb says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is, so he becomes. And that's why Paul admonishes us in Philippians 4, things that are true and pure and holy and right. Set your mind on these things, because he knows it's going to have an effect on us. Uh, there he's, he's dealing with people who you know, are in difficult situations, and he wants them to know the peace of God that goes beyond all human comprehension, but he knows that's incredibly difficult if they're not thinking properly. So, yeah, a person who grows up and they choose not to watch the average movie, watch the average television program, they've guarded their thought life and they're going to benefit from that. Uh, They're going to be blessed by that. Um, Does it take time to clean it out? Certainly. And scripture memory is key. But I think what you do in your conscious hours will affect a lot of what happens in your unconscious hours, so to speak, when you're asleep. In other words, if you are tempted and you battle temptation biblically, a thought comes to your mind to think an impure thought. Well, if you've hid God's word in your heart, the psalmist asks in Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? And he answers his own question. He says, by keeping it according to your word, with all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. So there's an earnestness first to be in the word of God and to want to obey the word of God. Some people are in the word of God, but they have no intention of being any holier than they are right now. There's not a real earnest obedience. It's just some perfunctionary religious habit that they perform, you know, a chapter a day to keep the devil away. But there's not an earnest desire to really know what God is saying and to apply it to their life. But that's not what the psalmist is saying. With all my heart, I've sought you Do not let me wander from your commandments. And then he says in the next verse, your word I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so the word of God becomes the sword of the spirit as Paul describes uh, that weaponry in Ephesians chapter six. And it's what we see the Lord Jesus doing in Mark four, Luke four, when he's tempted with each temptation, he comes back and he says, it is written. Now, if we don't have scripture hidden in our heart, then the Spirit of God has nothing to bring to the forefront of our mind. The parallel between Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, and if you remember in English, there can be a main verb and then a number of participles that get their force from the main verb. And so there in Ephesians, the main verb is be filled with the Spirit. And then all the way through chapter 5, actually all the way into chapter 6, there's a number of participles that really basically express what it looks like when someone is under the control of the Holy Spirit. They'll give thanks in all things. They'll be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. 
uh, wives to their husbands. Husbands will love their wives as Christ loved the church. You step into chapter six. Children will be uh, obeying their parents. That's the sign of a spirit filled child, a spirit filled dad. Fathers won't be provoking their children to anger. Uh, Slaves will be serving their masters, not just with eye service, you know, when they're looking but serving them like they're serving Jesus Christ. Masters will stop threatening um, and so forth. So all the way, praying in the spirit. These are all participles that really picture what it means to be or what it looks like to be filled with the spirit. In Colossians, it's interesting because it's an entirely different command. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the command, the main verb, so to speak, is let the word of God richly dwell within you. And then there's a series of participles in the Greek New Testament that picture what that looks like. Uh, Singing with thankfulness in your heart to the Lord. Uh, being subject to one another, wives to your husbands, husbands loving your wives, children being obedient to their parents, slaves and uh, fathers not exasperating their children, slaves um, uh, not serving with external service only, but with sincerity of heart for one. And so it's much more confined and tighter. The explanation What Paul covers over two chapters, he covers here in about 10 verses, but the passages are identical, but they come from a different command. One command says, be filled with the spirit. Here's the results. Here's how you know. One says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Here's how you know that's functioning. So there's, um, just as there are two parents in physical birth, there are two parents in spiritual birth and what we call justification. So we're born again on the one hand by the spirit, John 3. On the other hand, Peter will say, you've been born not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. So the spirit of God uses the word of God to bring about conversion. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. But what energizes the Bible in the heart that brings conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, the same two parents are involved in the process of sanctification. On the one hand, be filled with the spirit. On the other hand, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So Christ filled with the spirit, Matthew 4, Luke 4 says, um, then faces the devil and he faces the devil with the word of God. So if in your conscious hours, because you've hidden God's word in your heart and because the spirit has no hindrance in your life, Namely, you're not quenching him by having unconfessed sin in your heart. You're not grieving him and that you're totally available for whatever he has for you. Uh, You're walking by him. You're sowing to him. Those four commands that describe the human responsibility that we share as Christians as it relates to God, the spirit, quench not, grieve not, walk by, so too. If that's true, then the Holy Spirit has freedom to bring to the forefront of your mind what you should do. So a dirty thought comes and and God's Spirit brings to the forefront of your mind, you're to be holy for I am holy, saith the Lord. For a man to look at a woman to lust at her is to commit adultery in his heart. And then the real temptation is to really block out what God the Holy Spirit is bringing to the forefront of your mind and to shut that out to be able to concentrate on the temptation. And it becomes much more of a willful decision to rebel against the living God. And you could take this principle, you could apply it to any realm that someone is struggling with. 
if they have a bad uh, temper or a dishonest tongue, whatever it might be, they need to confess that. They need to present themselves to God as a living sacrifice, but they also need to hide the word of God in that realm of their heart. And when you find yourself doing that in your conscious hours, you will find yourself doing that in your unconscious, even in your sleep. So I hope that helps. Good question. Let's go to the next one. Indeed, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Uh, this listener dictated their question. They would like you to address why some churches no longer have people go forward to accept Christ or to join the church, etc. Well, there's nothing necessarily sacred about inviting people forward on a Sunday morning. I think what's critical is that there is an avenue by which you can reach people for Christ and find out where they are in their spiritual journey. Now, the confession of faith in the New Testament is really baptism. When Jesus said, if you won't confess me before men, neither will I confess you before my Father in heaven, he's really talking about baptism. Because that is our confession of faith. So in the first century, when someone received Jesus Christ, almost always the same day, in many examples in the Acts, the same hour, they're baptized. And of course, in that century, sometimes at great cost, sometimes it would mean persecution. And as the church progressed, it became harder and harder and harder to make that decision, so to speak, without experiencing persecution. And so if you openly confess Jesus as Messiah and you are Jewish, read the book of Hebrews, you see the results. You're ostracized, you're persecuted, you're ignored, you're hated by your fellow Jews. If you're a Gentile and you publicly confess Christ, by the time the Neronian persecutions come around, then it meant torture for many Gentiles. It meant the Colosseum. It meant all kinds of things. So um, I do believe, though, there's real benefits to a church having a public invitation on Sunday morning. Number one, I think if they're able to do that, they're able to find people right there in the service by whom the Spirit of God is dealing with and stirring. So like I say, last Sunday, a number of people came down in, in both services, and some of the people who came down didn't really know why they were coming down. I want to join the church or whatever. The fact is, is some of them had not yet received Christ as their Savior. But I would never have known that. And I never would have had the opportunity, as we did Sunday night, to lead some of those people to the Lord had I not given an invitation. Not to mention, I think another advantage of the invitation is when people come to a church like ours and they profess to know Christ and they say, I am born again uh, and I have been baptized you don't really know them, but you've talked, spoken with them, and they, you know, at least theologically, they check out. Uh, you ask them to join publicly. Why? Well, because the biblical principle is, is that if someone really knows Christ as Lord, they won't be ashamed of him. Uh, they'll be willing to openly confess him. So we've gotten real smart in our day, and we've eliminated the invitation. Why? Well, that's not a seeker good thing to do. See, because again, the unbeliever is driving the church rather than the church driving the unbeliever. And so for the most part, the invitation has disappeared in America. And uh, I would just ask a basic question. Are things going better in America? Certainly not. Uh, The Southern Baptist just published last month a 60-year low in the number of conversions 
as expressed in their baptismal numbers. 60-year low. Um, and most Southern Baptist churches have eliminated the invitation. Why? Because of guys like Andy Stanley who will say, get rid of it. But look, when the Spirit of God is moving in a service, very often he'll convict people. And of course, the real harvest is not the end of the service. It's the end of the age. But still, sometimes, and I, I'm, you know, sometimes pastors say, I don't want to do an invitation. Why? Well, no one ever comes forward. Well, maybe you need to take a hard look. Maybe, uh, maybe your people aren't inviting uh, unbelievers in reaching out and being obedient to the Great Commission. Again, we don't orchestrate the morning worship service for the unbeliever, but for the believer in mind. But we recognize that there are unbelievers present, as 1 Corinthians 14 indicates should be true. And so you, whatever you're preaching on, there ought to be an opportunity to address people who think they're Christians, but they're not. And people who know they're not Christians, but you invite them to receive Christ. But you have a two-pronged approach, first towards the believer, but you have the unbeliever in mind. And so um, I think it's a big mistake. And is America better for it? No. Because now we, we, we have these huge churches. No one's really called to account. Um, no one's called to take an unashamed stance for Christ. We have the largest churches in the history of our nation with the least amount of impact. Is the nation healthier than it was 40 years ago? No, there's been nothing but a spiritual downgrade. And the church looks worldly. Uh, the professing evangelical church in terms of lifestyle is not all that different from an unbelieving world. So um, to me, it's important. Some people say that's old fashioned. Well, I'll be old fashioned for Jesus. All right. Uh, Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Our next caller would like to know uh, what were the requirements necessary to be one of the original apostles? And if these requirements are known and in scripture, how do some preachers call themselves apostles today? Well, anyone who calls himself an apostle today on the same level as one of the 12, or we might say 14 or 15, because there was the original 12 as they were called, their term, the 12. Of course, Judas was never a true apostle. And Jesus told us that twice in John's gospel. He said it would have been better for him never to have been born. But he was what he was, not because he was God's pawn, but because of decisions that he made in the human heart. And what he meant for evil, God ultimately used for good. He helped orchestrate the the crucifixion that brought about our redemption. But the Bible is very clear to have been an apostle. Number one, you had to have been called by him. And so in Acts chapter one, when Judas is gone and he's already hung himself and they're in the upper room and they have to pick a 12th apostle and and, and that 12th apostle, along with the original 11, are going to play a very important role in the future. They're going to sit on 12 thrones in the coming kingdom. They're going to have a very special place with the Jewish people. And so uh, they say it is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, begin with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these should become a witness of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, which who's also called justice and Matthias. And they prayed 
This is, of course, before the Holy Spirit is given. So they draw lots of swords, and God sovereignly chooses the lot of Matthias, and he becomes the twelve. But he had to have been a witness of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul defends his apostleship against some of the false teachers who had entered into the Corinthian church, and they say, well, Paul's a Johnny-come-lately. He's not an apostle, but we are. And Paul asks the question, um, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Again, one of the requirements is Acts 1 affirms is you had to have seen Christ in his resurrected body. Nobody can meet that requirement today. He will later say in that same letter in 1 Corinthians, um, he'll, he'll mention about the qualifications. If someone is a true apostle, um, and he'll say um, here in First Corinthians that if you are a true apostle, that you will do the sign, you will have the signs of an apostle. If you truly met the living God, you will do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do. If everyone could do the signs, wonders, and, mir- and miracles that Paul did and the other apostles did then 2 Corinthians 12, 12 would be meaningless. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, if everyone could do these signs, wonders, and miracles, then his argument is void. His point is, one of the things that marks me out as a true apostle is that I did the signs, wonders, and miracles that only a true apostle can do. Now, there are some guys who go around today and they say they do miracles in the same level the apostles do. They're lying. That's all they are. They're just sheer liars. So when Oral Roberts said he raised someone from the dead, he was a liar. That's all he was. That was a unique apostolic miracle. So no one can go around today and if they put out on the sign in front of uh, the church, apostles so-and-so, you know right off that their theology is weak, wrong, they're uninformed, they're not even qualified to be a pastor. Because clearly, to be an apostle, you had to have been personally chosen by him, you had to have seen the resurrected Lord, and if those things were true, then the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could do would be true in your life. Now, there is the gift of apostleship today, but I would no more promote a spiritual gift on a sign out front um, then, you know, I mean, that's just kind of silly, but that's not how most people are using uh, the term apostle when it's out in front of a church sign. So, And that gift means that they are a church planter. Yeah, pretty much. It's uh, an apostle. The word apostolos in Greek means a sent one. And one of the aspects of, a, of someone with the gift of uh, apostle, which is different from the office, and, and there, are, there are offices and there are gifts in the New Testament. For instance, there's the office of prophet. There is the gift of prophecy. There's the office of teacher, which James talks about. There's the gift of teaching. There's a responsibility to teach. There's the awful office of being an apostle, but there's a gift. And one aspect of that is they're involved in building up the churches. And, and a common expression of it is a church planner, where he will go uh, to a place where Christ has not been named, where there's no maybe strong indigenous church, and God will use him to plant the church, to get it started, up and running, organized, and very often because of the way God has wired him, 
he'll want to then find a pastor who's willing to come in and shepherd them long time and move on and go and plant another another ministry, another local church. Very good. All right, 525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and a caller who says that he has a relative who has given all the right answers to the diagnostic questions, but they are listening to men who were publicly disgraced. Um, I'm assuming people in ministry. How do you stress discernment to this relative, or should the discernment be clear to someone once they become born again? Well, uh, yes and no. Um, It's a two-sided coin. It's kind of like forgiveness. On the one hand, uh, Jesus uh, told a parable when Peter said, well, you know, how many times should we forgive our brother up till, you know, seven times, which was the common popular rabbinical teaching of the day. And Jesus said, no, I say to you 70 times seven. And basically he was using hyperbole there to say an unlimited number of times you should be willing to forgive. And then he goes on and he and he tells this parable in Matthew 18, uh, beginning in verse 22. And basically, there's a servant who goes to his king. He owes his king $20 million. He begs for mercy. The king releases of, of his debt. He goes home. His servant, who owes him not $20 million, but $50, comes and begs for forgiveness, but he refuses to show any. And he treats him harshly. And Jesus in the parable, the point of the parable is that's the mark of an unbeliever. That if you've truly received God's forgiveness, then you will, as a mark of that conversion, forgive others. So one aspect of conversion is a willingness to forgive others. And people who constantly hold grudges, who are unforgiving, are people who may need to take a hard look and to take the counsel of the Apostle Paul when he says, test yourself to see if you be in the faith, because they indeed might not be in the faith at all. But on the other hand, it can also be a command that's given to a saved person. So Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to pray, forgive us of our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Uh, That's instruction given to believers. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, um, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. So there's the fact that there's a command to a believer to forgive tells me that there's a possibility that a Christian can withhold forgiveness. And so we're commanded to forgive. Well, the same two-sided coin could be applied to a number of issues in life. On the one hand, when you're born again, 1 Corinthians 2 says you have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? You, because you have been regenerated by the Spirit, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. All things have become new. Because he's a new creature, he has a new capacity to think his thoughts after the thoughts of God. Again, an unsaved man, a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot appraise them because they're spiritually appraised. That's the mark of an unbeliever, that he can't really uh, soak in and appreciate and encapsulate into his own heart biblical truth. Why? Because he's unregenerate. He's a natural man. He is what he is naturally. And the second birth changes all that. And so... On the one hand, it's a mark of conversion. On the other hand, God's people are commanded 
to be discerning. Uh, The passage that comes to mind is Philippians 1. And there he says, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So he wants us to abound more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment. Uh, That's a a growth issue. Uh, He will say, for instance, in the third chapter, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. There is there is a, um, a principle that's implicit there that you can measure a dog, that you can measure a false teacher. You can measure someone who's a part of the false circumcision. Uh, you have discernment. Um, many times people will say, well, judge not lest you be judged. Uh, they say that's the most quoted verse by unbelievers today. But Jesus also said in John seven twenty four that we are to judge with righteous judgment. First uh, John 4, 1 says to test the spirits to see if they be of God. So all I would say is that this person who knows all the right answers, if you were to pull them aside and say, well, Joe Schmo, this preacher you're watching here on TV says this. Let me show you over here. Um, Henry, what the Bible actually says. And if he has no appetite to receive that, and he only embraces what Joe Schmo says, then you probably have um, an unbeliever that you're dealing with. Someone who has an intellectual knowledge of the Bible, but no eyes to see spiritual truth. Asking a natural man to see, to understand, to embrace, to appraise spiritual truth is like asking a blind man to evaluate an art contest. It's like asking a deaf man to be the judge at a music recital. He doesn't have the equipment to do it. 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980. And if you asked a question on today's Bible line and would like to hear the answer, maybe didn't get a chance to hear it in its entirety or Uh, Perhaps uh, you've got a friend that could benefit from hearing this program but didn't get to today. We always uh, have it posted online at wagp.net. Just uh, go to our TBL, the Bible Line Archives. We do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible Line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Um, I was pretty amazed last night. I was watching Bill O'Reilly. And he and Charles Krauthammer were having a debate about the uh, things that are going on with Planned Parenthood currently. And I was astounded to hear Bill O'Reilly say that he believed that at the moment of conception, it was a baby. And it just had shocked me beyond belief. Krauthammer's argument was a great many people don't feel that way. Uh, he goes, if, if that's the case, why don't they have funerals for babies who miscarry? And... Just, just listening to Krauthammer, supposedly who is a, a highly intelligent man, um, I'm just, I'm just depressed totally at how far this country has descended into evil, and how you can not believe that God does not impart a soul upon a baby at the moment of crea- of its conception. It just, it, it, it's, it's beyond belief and it's beyond the pale. And I'd just like to, to hear your comment on that. Well, Bill O'Reilly obviously is correct um, that life begins at the moment of conception. That's clearly what the Bible teaches. Psalm 139 
is a beautiful picture of God weaving a baby together in his mother's womb. And the child is viewed as human. Um, the term brephos is the Greek New Testament word for baby. And the term is applied not only to babies who are outside of the womb, but also to babies who are in the womb, like John the Baptist, like the um, when Elizabeth comes and she sees Mary, who's pregnant, and John the Baptist, who's the forerunner of the Lord, that Isaiah 40 and Malachi prophesied would come before Messiah to prepare the way of the Lord, he jumps when he's in his mother's womb. The baby jumps. The baby moves. Um, God gave spiritual recognition to a baby even in the womb. Jeremiah said that God called me from the womb. God doesn't call pieces of fetal tissue into um, ministry. He calls people. God had marked him out as a prophet of God, even when he was in his mother's womb. So the Bible is very clear in many passages of scripture that life begins at conception. King David in Psalm 51, 5 can say, in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, he's acknowledging he's a sinner from the moment of conception because he's a person. Uh, Charles, I think, makes an interesting point there in that sometimes there is an inconsistency amongst believers when they do have a miscarriage. Um, with being careful here with my words, I think of a, a woman who uh, uh, is a dear friend and she has had two miscarried babies and in both instances she wanted those little babies, one that was like 15 weeks and another that was 12 weeks and and they wanted those babies and they had to fight for those babies in the hospital to be able to take those babies home and to bury those babies. That's what they wanted to do. They didn't want those babies put in some medical waste bag and then thrown into the dumpster. So I think he has a valid point that if indeed this is a person from the moment of conception, then we should give some honor. And I've done funerals over the years uh, for babies that have been miscarried before just before they reach full gestation. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, that's a pro-life stance. That's acknowledging what God says about life beginning at conception. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Uh, our next caller has an interesting financial question. Uh, they own a home that they're no longer able to live in. They rented it for a couple of years, but now they are getting ready to retire and live on a fixed income. They'd like to know, is it scriptural for them to do a short sale on their house as someone has recommended them to? Um, yeah, there's nothing necessarily wrong or immoral or um, that lacks integrity with a short sale. Now, I'm not saying that out of experience. I've never had to do one. But when you go and uh, you take a loan with a bank, you're making a promise. You know, I'm going to make, you know, 360 payments or however long your loan is. Um, and they're assuming the risk that you are going to, um, make these payments. And in the contract that you sign with them, if you don't make the payments after certain number of payments, and there's certain degree of discretion, the bank can use most loans. It's three to six months. Sometimes they let people go longer, but after a certain amount, then they can repossess. 
And now uh, they, of course, try to uh, mitigate their risk by by determining what the house is worth so that if you only make, you know, X number of payments and then you jump ship or you lose your job or, you know, you you die or whatever happens, that they can get that house and hopefully resell it without taking a loss at it. So that's all calculated in in, in the process. Uh, a short sale basically is an agreement with the bank where they agree. I mean, you, you basically have two choices. You can say, well, I'm just going to stop making the payments. In which case, the bank then repossesses the home. You lose maybe your credit score and other things, but, you know, they repossess the home. A short sale, the bank is basically saying, we want to work with you. And we want, we want this because we think it will be advantageous to us and to you to orchestrate a short sale. So there's nothing morally wrong with that at all. Uh, they're basically saying that I'm, I'm, we're willing to assume the risk with you. Now, one of the, one of the beefs that some of the banks had, <laughs> and it's a two-sided coin, is a lot of the houses in America were overevaluated, and when the 2007-2008 crash came, and and houses that you know sold for four hundred thousand were now worth you know two hundred and fifty thousand, and people were walking on those houses. You know the bank said, "Well, that's unfair," but it was you could equally say, "Well, it was unfair for the bank to allow you to have a four hundred thousand dollar loan because they said that's what the house was worth." So it's it's a two-sided coin, and, and honestly, a lot of the um, false uh, evaluations as to what a house was worth was actually driven by the banking system in America, because what they were doing is, uh, you know, you took a loan, say, with Bank X, and they knew that they were going to immediately sell it to Company B, along with 10 other loans. Um, and so the time to see if the house was really worth that much money to see if you were credit worthy was being overlooked and, uh, homes were moving so fast that the market was falsely, you know, elevated, uh, prices escalated beyond what homes were really worth. And, but that was as much the bank's fault as it was anyone else's. And of course, you know, new laws were written to try to, mitigate against that. I'm not sure that they have, but uh, at least they're they're trying to. But no, there's nothing morally wrong with a short sale. Uh, that can be a legitimate financial agreement that the bank has to make with you. I mean, they can either do a short sale or you can walk on the house, which is usually not advantageous to them because when a house is walked on and they're trying to sell it, especially if it's a hard to move home, um, then the house is empty, it goes into Ill, Ill repair, sometimes it's vandalized, the landscaping's not done. And so when someone negotiates with the bank a short sale, then, um, you know, uh, they're going to move on the price of the home. It's probably going to move quicker, but there's some mutual responsibility that, that's taken. So I appreciate the spirit of that question because you're wanting to do what's right and pleasing to the Lord. But, you know, that's a two-sided agreement. And if the bank agrees to it, relax your conscience and go for it if that's what you need to do at this point.
All right. I think we've got time for one more question. A listener from Beaufort would like to know what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and also what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. Well, um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an awful thing. Uh, Of course, there was an occasion when Jesus Christ did a triple miracle and the Pharisees, after he had done the triple miracle, wanted to attribute the miracle not to the Lord Jesus, not to the Messiah himself, to God in human flesh, but they wanted to attribute the miracle to the devil himself. And it was a, it was a wicked thing that they were doing. It was a terrible thing. And you can read about it in uh, Matthew chapter 12. Uh, there was brought to him a demon possessed man who was blind and dumb. So he's demon possessed. He's blind and he's unable to speak. And Jesus healed him. The demon was cast out. The eyes were restored and the ability to speak all came back. And of course they said, well, he did this by Baalzebul, the chief demon by Satan. And Jesus said, look, your theology isn't even logical because any kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. And so he then goes on and he makes this incredible statement. He said, he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven. And he'll make it very clear. It shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Why is that? Blasphemy against the father could be forgiven. Blasphemy against the son could be forgiven, he says, but not against the spirit because that was their final witness. They had basically blasphemed the father and that all the prophets shouted, Jesus is Lord. All the prophecies that they wrote of that the father said Messiah would do. He did, but they rejected that testimony. Um, They rejected the written word of God. Uh, They rejected the testimony that the son gave about himself. He claimed to be Messiah, but they rejected his testimony. So there was only one testimony that was left. And that was the testimony of the Holy Spirit who was working through Christ. And they rejected him as well. And so there was no other testimony given to them. Uh, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, God follows his own advice. Let everything be confirmed. And they utterly rejected all the witnesses that God gave them. So there was no witness left. And that's utter unbelief. Can a man commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit today? Well, maybe not in the exact same way. But when people reject what the father says about the son, when people reject what the son says about the son, and when they keep saying no to God, the Holy Spirit, no, I don't want to believe. No, I don't want to hear about Jesus. No, I don't want to be born again. No, 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 no. Eventually, God may say, you can have your wish and you will commit an eternal sin. And, and that's why Jesus said the devil can come and snatch the seed that they may not believe and be saved. And so when the spirit of truth witnesses to you that you're a sinner, that you need a savior, and you keep telling him no, then you're really attributing evil to him, just like these Pharisees did. You're calling what he is speaking to your heart evil and wrong and an untruth. And that's an unforgivable sin in the end. And that's why there is an urgency to come to Christ. And if you've not, I hope you will today. God bless you. Have a great day as you walk with Christ. 